Our next speaker is Dr. Craig Bingman. Uh, many of you heard from Craig at the banquet dinner, so I'll keep this introduction relatively brief. But Craig has been absolutely instrumental in developing our understanding of the chemical processes that underlie essentially every aspect of our, our uh, hobby. He's been an early pioneer, and he's also the 2019 Masna Award winner. Please welcome Dr. Craig Bingman. Uh, today, he's going to be speaking about, well, some stuff he wants to talk about. So give him a round of applause, please. So, <clears throat> I would, like many of you, I was out kind of pretty late last night at the bar, and uh, I woke up this morning and I found that someone had put had pranked me and put this speaker thing on my name tag. So I guess I have to give a talk today, right? Um, uh, there was a title for this, for this talk, and then it was just like, I'm like, I'm just gonna talk about some stuff, because I won the Masna Award, so it's like, there's what, you know, it's completely relaxed from here on out, right? I mean, I'm just on, I'm on glide path sort of for the rest of my life. Um, so thank, thank everyone, everyone involved with the, uh, with the conference and, and with the nomination and uh, selection process for the Masna Award. Um, as, as you know, I did, I did win a major award last night. Um, uh, it didn't actually look like that, though. The, I thank Joe for this, this photograph from last night. And as you can see, uh, I couldn't see. Um, I was completely blinded. It was really bright up there. Um, sort of unnecessary roughness there with the lights. Um, but there's, there's some awards that I'm, I'm probably even more proud of um, than that. So you may know that I have a, uh, a nearly three-year-old son. And it's been a very interesting, it's been very interesting for me uh, to have Kai. And uh, this vacation, there's, there's always like a new revelation every day. So the revelation of this vacation was that I'm now the dad who has to win prizes at carnival things so my kid can get like a stuffed toy, right? So um, I'm not sure if this is gonna play or not, but it turns out that I, I did it, right? So um, yeah, thanks, thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> so uh, uh, the, the Masno Award was, was nice, but uh, this, is, this is really the prize right here, so. Um, I was, uh, you know, I was thinking about what I was going to talk about, and there's, you know, there's a lot of things that, that I could talk about. I, I thought about doing like a timeline thing, right? So I was gonna, I was gonna start out with the Big Bang, and uh, you know, the talk might go on like a million years or something. That that didn't seem very good. But there were some like really significant events in the history of the Earth uh, that I might have highlighted. Uh, one of which was the oxygenation of the planet um, in the primordial ocean. There's about as much iron dissolved in it as there is sodium in seawater today. So if you're wondering why life requires iron, um, it's because there was a lot of iron around in the beginning of, of when biochemistry was, was established. Uh, not so much now because of oxygen, right? And there are these huge, uh, banded formations of iron in various places of the world. They're commercially valuable um, iron ore deposits as well. Uh, so that was a big deal, but I decided I wasn't gonna talk about that. Um, I could have talked about 
uh, a plate, you know, stromatolites and the, the billion year old association between calcification and photosynthesis. Uh, and this is actually in the Bahamas, and, and these guys are probably just getting absolutely slagged right now. So, uh, but they have been around a billion years, and I'm, I'm thinking they're probably going to make it, right? Uh, th these, are, these are limestone formations that are formed by uh, uh, cyanobacteria on the surface. And they, they sort of disproportionate bicarbonate, and they like make some calcium carbonate, they generate some CO2. Um, and it's, it's, this is the same trick, basically, that corals uh, play today. But I decided I wasn't going to talk about that either. So, um, One thing that I do want to talk about is my personal arc through the hobby. And this, this talk will, will basically cover you know, uh, uh, the aquarium hobby according to, as told by Craig Bingman. And in the beginning of my like, really serious dive into the hobby, um, there were Martin Moe's books. And they, as I mentioned last night, they were extraordinarily uh, important to me. And I, I can't thank Martin enough for, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I just cannot imagine actually the aquarium hobby without Martin having the, the, the foundational role that he, he played in our, in our, in our hobby. Um, so in the 1990s, you know, don't, don't read this. I'm just sort of gonna gloss over this. So the internet was starting, and there were these things called Usenet news groups. And I was, in, I was a graduate student, and I was finishing up, and I started reading, and I noticed that there were some groups about aquariums out there. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And in fact, there was, there was some people talking about reef aquariums. Um, and uh, imagine this, they were, they were having a hard time maintaining calcium and alkalinity. And even then, the, the threads were like quite heated about this. In fact, the one that I responded to first was called Calcium and, and Alkalinity Wars, okay? So, uh, but I was very timid, and I actually got someone named Patty Beatles, um, who, who I'm still friends with. Um, I think she's, she's, per, she's completely out of the, the hobby right now. But I, I like, I, was, I sent this to Patty, and, and I said, could you read this and see if it's worth posting? Because, you know, I'm, not, I'm really not sure. I'm just like, I'm just a graduate student and I don't really have a, a marine tank set up right now. And uh, she, she decided that it was worth posting and, and put it up on the, on the Usenet uh, news groups in 1992. Uh, the first post that I think I was involved with was 1991. And I was trying to prevent someone from making a bomb or something like that with potassium permanganate and oxidizers uh, in a glass bottle. So I made my first sort of post uh, in 1992, and uh, I got flamed, actually. Uh, some guy named Greg Smith said, uh, how cute. Let's throw some equations in to give credence to our thoughts. Why not, you know? Uh, do you know? that they're the dominant equations governing what happens when you add substance X to your tank. Uh, in some cases, at least adding calcium hydroxide also decreases alkalinity. So I was like, I thought calcium hydroxide seemed like a pretty good way to go, uh, even then. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more going on than you think. So uh, Greg Smith, uh, the, the, who, who flamed me in 1992, um, standing here before you today, I have only two words for you, okay? And the first one doesn't begin with F. 
Uh, I won, okay? I won. So I spent a lot of early, uh, time early on thinking about uh, calcium and alkalinity supplements and to like distill down a whole bunch of stuff to the point of, of being like almost unrecognizable. Um, calcium and alkalinity supplementation today is as easy as one, two, three, right? So there are some one-part supplements like calcium hydroxide and calcium carbonate CO2 reactors where there's one, one stream of stuff going into the aquarium. There are a uh, three-part system uh, that was uh, originated in 1994, I think, by Hans Balling in, in Europe. And there's the two-part stuff, which is really a uniquely North American uh, contribution to the hobby. And Bob, Bob Stark is, is with us today. And he was uh, involved with the first commercialized two-part supplement, uh, ESV Bionic. And people still use it today to great advantage. There were some other early ones that came along, like C-Balance and, and some others. Um, so the process of, so, so also sort of during this time, I was like trying to make things easier for people. And I made a toss-off suggestion. I, I can't remember if it was on CompuServe or where. So I, I was like downloaded all the CompuServe archives and I was going through all that old information. And it turns out that Fishnet never got backed up, right? So there was this, an attempt to uh, download all the content off of CompuServe before they turned off the lights. Uh, and the backup, as it turns out, was incomplete. So I guess I can say anything I want to about the stuff on Fishnet now, because I spent, I, I asked everyone, you know, did you have a backup of Fishnet? Do you have backup? And like, nobody has it. To the extent that it exists, it's all on old computers that probably won't turn on anymore. Um, so anyway, I, I did make this toss-off comment really, really, really early um, that instead of like just throwing in, you know, a, a, a calcium supplement, which is maybe solid or something like that, and some buffer, which might be solid as well, and people just were like all over the place with their calcium and alkalinity numbers. Why don't you just make a half molar stock of calcium chloride and a one molar stock of sodium bicarbonate? And uh, this, this idea, let's just say, was, was in the, was in the uh, collective consciousness of the hobby at about this time, right? And it is through these discussions and these very early products that uh, all of the liquid, ionic, rational, fractional, proportion products sprung. So this is where they, they started. Um, and, and, you know, I give Bob really a lot of credit for being first on the board with, with B-Ionic. We were both in Brooklyn at the time, right? And we were like, we were buds. We went to the same aquarium society meetings and hung out with the same people. And these are some of those people, okay? So people, we didn't call ourselves this, but people did call us the New York City uh, or Brooklyn Reef Mafia, and I don't know why. Um, but these guys are Tony Vargas and Terry Siegel, Greg Scheimer and Doug Robbins. And, and all, all four are, are really dear, were really dear friends of mine. Um, a sad thing about winning the award like really a long time after I did the work is that not all of my friends can be here um, both uh, Greg and Doug uh, passed away some time ago, 
So uh, I'm really sad that they can't, that, that they are no longer part of my life and that they can't be here today. I would have I really enjoyed that. So, um, so I talked about some stuff that was going on in the early 90s. And then there, there was what I think was really sort of like the singularity in the reef aquarium hobby. Um, and the, the, the focal point through which um, a lot of people got involved and could get involved with, with the reef hobby was the Reef Aquarium Volume 1. So Julian and Charles did a really excellent job with this. And I think that they made, they made reef keeping accessible. And then there was like this accelerated period throughout the 90s where I would argue that we basically developed a toolkit for success that everyone is using today. Um, it's baked into the design of, of, of all the, you know, the, the plug and play sort of aquarium systems that you get. It's, it's in all the chemical supplements, right? So, you know, you are, whether you know it or not, when you grab all this stuff off, basically it was worked out somewhere in the mid 1990s. Um, Rich has, a secret home lab, and I want you to know that there was a secret home lab in my apartment in New York City. Um, I, uh, <coughs> I painted a, 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 a door, blank door, with epoxy paint so that it would be a little bit more resistant to the chemicals that I was using, and I had it on you know, two filing cabinets, and that, that was literally my bench where I did a lot of the work for the Aquarium Frontiers articles that I, that I later published. Um, and these are actually some, I also didn't own a camera back then, which is too bad. And I remember that I snapped these, these images, and they're really, really poor, with a, uh, with a webcam that was attached to my computer. Well, my bench was right behind it, so I could kind of like aim it and take these pictures. So uh, my first articles were in 1995 and, uh, for the Aquarium Frontiers. Um, and, and I had to make my life more difficult than it should have been, so I, I wrote not one, but two articles. And the subjects were light transmission in aquariums um, as a function of activated carbon use, and uh, an article where I suggested that uh, uh, many of the coral uh, autofluorescent pigments were structurally and, and sequence related to, to GFP, which is a really nice image of GFP that David Goodsell um, has produced and, and put on the, the PDB website. So these are like really artful representations of, of protein molecules. And uh, I appreciate his, his work every time I see it. So what was going on then that, that compelled me to write about activated carbon and, and UV transmission? So there was an observation um, that corals often did not do very well after someone put a big load of activated carbon on their system. And there were two sort of schools of thought going on. Um, either the, there was a chemical process that involved, so the activated carbon was either removing or adding something to the water that made the corals do poorly, or perhaps um, the activated carbon was increasing the clarity of the water to the point that the corals had a hard time received too much light and, and went into kind of like a light, light shock mode. Um, what wasn't apparent was, was the magnitude of, of any sort of light effect that was, that was occurring in the aquarium. 
Um, in those days, we could actually tell that our water was a little bit yellow because we used uh, sort of more of a daylight color spectrum. I don't know how people today with these super blue LEDs even know if their water's yellow or not because it's just blue all the time, right? So um, you may be having some of these problems and not, not realize it. Um, so I think it's, it's probably worth going through this again today just because people's um, ability to perceive what may be happening with the system is, is a little bit impaired at this point. So this is a graph that I made. I, I, I collected water samples as a function of time during this activated carbon treatment, and I, I used a dual beam spectrophotometer to measure uh, light absorbance through the samples. Um, and this was, this was where the system started out. This is my little 20-gallon tank at the time. And the water was kind of yellow. Um, what's, what's really remarkable is that, you know, it, in an aquarium, if it were a meter deep, uh, there would be less than 10% than transmission of 400 nanometer light over a path length of a meter. So that's like 90% like of it's being absorbed before it goes that far. That's, that's kind of like a fairly big effect. Um, in, in the near UV, the, the uh, decrease in, in transmission or the absorbance of the water was, was colossal. Um, and uh, in, in wavelengths that might be plausibly created and escaped from metal halide fixtures, there was uh, a hundredfold or a thousandfold attenuation of the light because of the organic compounds dissolved in the water. So this is what uh, the situation looked like as, as a function of time as I added the carbon. And as you can see, these transmission isotherms are shifting down. More and more light is making it deeper and deeper into the aquarium as time goes on. Um, this is at four days into the time course and at uh, around 100 hours, so close to, uh, close to four days. Um, the water got a lot more clear. Um, and these are the transmittance ratios in the system. So it's like transmission at around 100 hours versus when I started. The ratio of those two numbers is, is in, indicated here. And you can see that, uh, again, around the uh, 400 nanometer range, there's, there's changes in transmission of 10, maybe 30-fold. Um, and in the UV, again, the absorbance, the, the, the increase in transmittance was, was, was absolutely colossal. Um, it was really hard to do these sorts of measurements. It required a lab-grade uh, uh, spec. So what I wanted to do was make a correlation with something that people probably could measure, which was APHA color units. And there were colorimetric tests for those. There was a Lamotte test and a Hawk test for measuring APHA color. But um, now there's a fair number of people who have like Hawk colorimeters, like uh, DR890s or 900s. And this is one of the programs that's on, on, your, on your colorimeter. And you don't have to use any reagents to do it. You know, it's just, you're just measuring transmittance uh, through your water sample versus a, a pure water blank. So uh, this, this was published in Aquarium Frontiers. There's a correlation. I correlated the number of APHA color units that, that I observed versus what the spectrum looked like. So you can, kind of, you can kind of see where you're at 
on these graphs, if you can go back and, and run down that article, I, if, if anyone wants this, this graph, I can send it to you, it's published. Um, so that's an interesting thing that, that people can do now. And I also saw uh, on the trade show that there's, there are spectrometers actually that people can put in their aquariums now and they could actually perceive a change in, in, the, in the different parts of the spectrum as they're doing something like an activated carbon treatment on, on their aquarium. So these are measurements that you know, were really hard to do when I, when I wrote these articles, but have actually now percolated up to the point where uh, people, can, people can also follow along with things that you can just buy off the shelf in the hobby. So that, that's pretty cool. Um, in, in, my, in my history, I've always tried to uh, make chemistry more accessible to people and have taken some pains to try to explain what's going on. Uh, this is a slide from a talk that I gave showing the difference between colorimetric assays and uh, titration assays. Um, so I hope I was somewhat successful in that endeavor. Um, one of the things that I'm probably most proud of was uh, a, a kind of a quantitative model for calcification in aquariums. And uh, this, this is a photograph of Marlon Atkinson. And Marlon got involved with the reef aquarium hobby for a while, again in the 90s. Um, he was a professor at the University of Hawaii and we were talking back and forth. And he was looking at, at some bigger systems. He was actually working on Biosphere 2 and I was looking at a bunch of uh, aquariums that, that hobbyists had, and there was some literature on how fast coral reefs calcify out there, and the, there was a kind of this hypothesis emerged that coral reefs, our, our captive reefs, might calcify as rapidly as reefs in the wild. So how quick is that? Um, it, it may surprise you that or maybe, maybe not, that corals in your system or corals in the wild are capable of, of laying down between 10 and 20 kilograms of calcium carbonate per square meter per year. That's a lot of calcium carbonate. Um, that's, that's fast enough that the corals are gonna rip out, can rip out in a completely packed top light, top water motion, SPS confluent aquarium basically all of the carbonate alkalinity out of the water in the course of a single day, all right? So it's really fast, and this is why people had struggled with it so much. Um, but again, with dosing pumps and all the, the cool supplements, calcium reactors, um, the, the technology to meet that really quick demand um, is, is satisfied today. So uh, I wrote an article um, in, in Aquarium Frontiers, uh, and, and gathered some system data in 1998 from a bunch of people uh, who were my friends and willing to share system details with me. And I made predictions with this quantitative model for calcification in aquariums and compared that with the actual observed rate in, in terms of how much calcium and alkalinity that they were adding to their systems. And uh, the prediction is in blue and the observed rates are, are in red. And what you can see is that uh, the prediction is, is basically within a factor of two of the observed values. So this is interesting because it gives you some system design um, 
uh, criteria and guidelines to follow. So if you don't want to work too hard on calcium and alkalinity, don't load your tank completely up with coral, put some negative space in there, give, give the, the fish some room to swim. It still looks pretty, um, and you're gonna have a lot easier time holding on to the system. And if you do that top light, top flow, sticks everywhere sort of system, um, you, better, you better brace yourself for impact, right? So this is how things looked uh, in, the, in 1998 in the hobby. It looked like things were, our, our, our hypothesis was basically validated. And you know these 10, this 1040 model is like averaged over all water temperatures and conditions in the wild, right? And these aquariums are all running at different temperatures and have different light flow in them. So the really ballpark numbers, but there's a good correspondence between wild calcification rates and rates that we observe in our system. A couple of years ago, I went back to this work and profiled a number of systems. I asked Rich for data, but he didn't give it to me and neither did Joe, and I want everyone to remember that. Some people, though, <coughs> were brave and, and they, did, they did respond. Uh, Terrence uh, of, of Neptune was a really exceptionally good sport about this. Um, he sent me some, some great numbers. And the prediction in this case was about four and a half kilograms per square meter per year. And what Terrence is getting is close to nine. So again, within this like factor of two tolerance, uh, Terrence is running sort of on the, on the high side of that. Uh, Sanjay, also a great sport, uh, unlike uh, Rich and Joe, um, sent me some data. And <coughs> uh, the prediction for Sanjay's tank was around nine kilograms per square meter. The observed calcification rate was, was pretty close to that, around 11. Um, Randy Donowitz, another, you know, another great guy, truly great guy. Um, who was really brave and sent me, sent me data. I don't know if they, were, if they were afraid or what was going on. But anyway, uh, Randy was super brave and sent me data. And in, in, in the case for, of Randy's system, the, the numbers match almost exactly, right? So uh, a, a few more, uh, MetroCat sent me some numbers. Um, the modeled rate was a little bit higher than, than observed, but again, within 50% for her tank. Uh, Chris Roberts sent me some numbers. Again, a really excellent quantitative agreement between the prediction and the observed values. Uh, predicted five, observed 5.1 kilograms per square meter per year. Uh, Jason uh, Langer uh, had a system that was, again, within about a factor of two of, of prediction. So um, I, I thought that it would be around five, and he's getting a little bit over two. So. I would, post, I would suggest to you then, based on the numbers in 1998 and the, the work that I did a couple of years ago, that in the 1990s, we had, uh, at least some individuals, had a, attained the ability to make corals grow at a rate that was just limited by the intrinsic biology of the animals, right? So we were doing as well as we could possibly do at growing corals at this very early time in the hobby. I think that what's happened really um, in subsequent years is that the toolkit has become more widely disseminated. The tech hardware is a lot, lot better and more accessible. It's easier to make a good choice as to what to, how to make, you know, the technical equipment 
to put into your aquarium today than it, than it was then. Um, I, I didn't just care about calcium and alkalinity, though, and this is, this is going to be a little bit small, but people have asked me. I've been talking about this for a while. Um, and this is a the original correspondence that I had with Randy Reed. Uh, when, and I'll, I'll tell you what this is, don't, but I, I wanted to prove that this actually happened because uh, uh, some people at, at Reed Mariculture wanted to see it. So here it is, guys. Um, In 1997, I believe there was an article that came out that suggested that dendroneptia was obtaining uh, a fair amount of its nutrition from microalgae. And we were very interested in maintaining non-photosynthetic organisms at that time. Uh, if we were going to feed them with phytoplankton, the, the choice was uh, to raise it. I was in New York City. Um, the footprint, you know, having a marine tank in your, in your apartment, your tiny apartment, was a fairly major commitment in space. And people, it seemed unlikely to me that people were then going to devote, there, there are no basements, right? I mean, like, your stuff is all out in your living space in New York City. Uh, that they would, they would also make a microalgae rearing rack seemed unlikely to me. So I started going through aquaculture. I'm like, someone has got to, somebody's figured this stuff out. So don't reinvent the wheel. Look, look, at least look around and see what's out there. And I found Reed Mariculture in, a, in, an, in an aquaculture magazine. They had an ad there. And I approached uh, Randy and I told him basically, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the ornamental world. Um, I think that people might be interested in, in adding phytoplankton to their tanks and I'd read about your pace. So Maybe we can work out something to get some samples. So, so he, he did. And I believe he, he's, he also told me that this was really the first contact that the ornamental hobby had with him. Um, this is a very well-established company. They were producing really colossal amounts of, of microalgae for aquaculture. But uh, those, two, those two areas, the ornamental world and reed mariculture, had not, had not touched yet. So. Uh, jump forward to now, uh, this is how this looks now. So I don't want to suggest that I'm taking any credit for the endeavor, the hard work, uh, the intellectual investment that, that these guys have made, because I'm not, right? But I was a matchmaker, and that's, that's, there's no doubt about that. So I'm very, very proud to have brought uh, uh, Reed Mariculture uh, in, into contact with a hobby, and I think that that's worked out exceptionally well, right? So now I guess I know why people like try to like hook people up to you because it's sort of rewarding to look with the, if it works out, right? I guess if it doesn't work out, then you just like throw out that data or something. But anyway, it's 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 fun. So um, I was always a big proponent of lime water, and I spent a fair amount of time trying to uh, explain to people what they could expect from it in terms of how much evaporation they needed to hit different calcification rates um, in an article in August 1998. Um, and then I tried to do something to make that envelope bigger and uh, wrote an article called Expanding the Limits of Lime Water where I suggested adding uh, organic carbon vinegar to saturated calcium hydroxide to make a mixture that was about 50% stronger and contained enough carbon to match 
the need for carbonate alkalinity once, once the acetate was. So it, it was like in a, in a very simple package, it was similar to the a calcium reactor because you got your, your carbon dioxide and your, um, and your carbon, you know, your calcium and your alkalinity all, all in the same package. And some people actually still use this today. I don't know if Joe still uses it or not. Well, a while ago he did. Um, but he's talking to Greg Biggerman now, so I don't really know what's going on with Joe's tank too much. Um, if you're using lime water, this is, this is a trick that, that you may want to play. Some people have seen that uh, at, at higher, the higher acetate levels, um, it's, it's, it's feeding not only bacterial growth, but it's, it's well established in the scientific literature that uh, corals can absorb acetate directly from the water. So it's also feeding the corals directly as well. Um, but it, you can get some cyanoblooms and maybe some, some sand clumping as well at high acetate. And here comes Kai. Um, I wrote an article about making your own uh, pH uh, buffer standard solutions. And again, I think this one's sort of like lost in the, in the sands of time. Uh, but if you've got 20 mule team borax in your laundry room, you have a high pH standard. And the nice thing about this is that you, don't, you only have to be really approximately like horseshoes close with the amount that you put in there because the pH is really insensitive to the borax concentration. Borax is an interesting substance in that it has both a mixture of, of acid and conjugate base in it in, in equal molar proportions. So uh, you don't have to mix two things together to make a buffer. It has this intrinsic, uh, very well-defined pH just built into basically the crystal structure of, of, of borax. And the pH of the standard solution that you get is pH 9.18. So it's a, uh, I think it's a half a teaspoon per pint if you want to use English measurements. Gets you really close to the NIST uh, standard borate solution. And this is actually a primary pH standard, guys. So this is like, this is like really a really very good high pH standard that you can make. And if, if, I don't know if people know this or not, but the, the different pH buffer solutions, if you get them in bottles, uh, the high pH one is the one that goes off the fastest because it absorbs uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So it's really super handy to be able to grab some RODI water, throw some borax in and have a really good uh, pH check. Um, I wrote a fair number of articles about the, the halides and this sort of element by element uh, discussion of aquarium chemistry was picked up by Randy Holmes Farley quite successfully. Uh, but I did write three element focused articles on fluoride, bromide, and iodide. There's an old observation that I really need to uh, get back to. And that was the, the I did some work with, with fluoride. And uh, Randy and Doug were the people, I guess, who were like brave enough for me to actually uh, add some fluoride to their systems. And it turns out that the half-life of fluoride in an aquarium is only like three or four days. So it goes away really, really super fast. I think there's something important happening here. I don't know that it's going to make, have a direct implication on coral calcification or anything like that. 
I think that it may have something to do with what happens to phosphate in our system. So um, at some point, I'd like to, to come, back, come back to that. Um, sort of winding down some of the work that I did in the past. I did a bunch of simulations of, of what happens when you use different calcium and alkalinity uh, maintenance systems. And these were simulations that were done incorporating both water changes uh, and, and using calcium, calcium chloride and sodium bicarbonate or sodium carbonate as the, uh, it doesn't make any difference, the outcome uh, as the alkalinity source. So, if, so this is a two kilogram per square meter per year, like 10 to 20% stony coral cover aquarium, so not, not a lot of coral. And uh, one thing that I note is that uh, although things look really dire if you don't do any water changes, there's a large change in the, uh, there's a large depletion in everything except for sodium and chloride ion, uh, there's also a fair amount of salt buildup too that you have to, you have to bail salt out of the system. If you're doing a 25% monthly water exchange, um, this, is, this is a perfectly acceptable way to maintain calcium and alkaline. There's really very little ionic shift, uh, but you have to do the water changes, right? So uh, you the, things look worse earlier for systems with more coral in them, um, and, and even worse once you've got, you're up to around 100% coral cover, um, and they look like really, really bad if you got like a really intense system. So things, things are, Things are really gonna die <laughs> if you don't do water changes, if you're just bailing out salt uh, in an aquarium that's full of stony coral. So this is not really a viable way of maintaining calcium and alkalinity for a lot of the systems that people aspire to. Um, and even with fairly intense water changes, more than a lot of people do, there's a substantial uh, depletion in everything except for sodium and chloride in the water, so this is, uh, this is an undesirable situation. I wanna make one sort of like comment here, and, and it's important when you're getting advice from people to understand what kind of system they have, what kind of system that you have, and make sure that it's, it's likely to translate. Because, you know, the guy who sets up a little, an aquarium with like 10% coral cover, and he's talking, he's telling you how things are going. This is over a five-year period, right? He's telling you, he's, it's been up for like six months, a year, and he's telling you everything's fine. I'm just using sodium, sodium, you know, uh, calcium chloride and sodium bicarbonate. It's cool. Everything's good. Everything's growing really great. Um, and, but but you, you're the guy who has like, you know, a, a tank full of really rapidly growing coral and a lot of light. Um, your, your mileage is varying a lot from, from that other person. So always keep that in mind, you know, there, there, are, there are things that are universal in our hobby and there are things that absolutely are not. And this is one of the cases where uh, things really will not translate across uh, systems with a substantial difference in the, in the biological content. I, I'm sorry, one last thing. Uh, this is not much of a magnesium mystery. People have seen for a long time in their tanks when they're using some, some ionic supplements that the calcium goes up and the magnesium goes down. And the reason for that is that um, instead of this being the equation that governs calcification in the aquarium, 
calcium and bicarbonate makes calcium carbonate and CO2, hydrated CO2. Uh, instead, there's a mixture of, there's a mixed carbonate that's being formed in our aquariums that has both calcium and magnesium in it. And this is not the, the N for, for, yeah, N for stony corals is about one mole percent, so it's very small. But N for uh, a, a number of coralline algae is 50 mole percent. So they're actually making dolomite in our system. And it was only a few years ago that people like really figured this out and showed that this paradox that existed in the literature um, was, was, people found dolomite in reef carbonates. And dolomite was thought to only occur, you know, after, after the carbonates were in the earth for a really long time and a lot of heat pressure, diagenic uh, conditions. Uh, and they, but they found them in like very, very recent carbonates. What was going on? Well, it's because coralline algae are doing this. And this is, this is where the magnesium is going in most of our systems. Um, it makes calcium and alkalinity relationships more complicated because there's a third partner here that's, that's being drawn from the systems. So, you know, I've, I've shown graphs like this for a long time where the system sort of slides along one of these diagonal lines as you add a balanced calcium and alkalinity supplement to it to traverse from, from the top or, or up from the bottom. You either have to add calcium or buffer to the system to put yourself back on, on this balanced line. Uh, what happens when you incorporate the, the magnesium uh, loss is something like this. This is a projection of really a three-dimensional system. And what you see is that you, you, every day you're adding in a pulse, let's say, your balanced additive, um, and you know, you're, you're restoring all the alkalinity that was depleted from the system. And then the, the, the car mixed carbonate is formed you add something that's, that's really balanced for just calcium and alkalinity, it doesn't include magnesium. Uh, and, and each day, the calcium sort of creeps up. What I'm not showing you is that an equal amount of magnesium is also lost from the system as well. Um, this rate can be pretty fast in systems that have a lot of coralline algae in it for the simulation that I did. Um, it was, the calcium ion concentration was going up by uh, about a mig, per mil per day. And uh, it doesn't take very many days before, before you start to notice that something's really uh, going amiss with your, with your aquarium. This is really, I think, what's going on, and it's fairly simple to, to correct. You just have to measure magnesium, which is the slowest moving of, of the three, calcium, alkalinity, and magnesium, and keep that topped off. So the very, very last part of my talk I want to spend a few minutes talking about, not, not myself basically, but, but all of you guys. Um, it was at one point, it was another revelation that I had in my life that in my hobbies I was like stalking Charles Darwin. And what do I mean by that? Well, I was like really into orchids. Um, I loved reefs and, and I, I got really interested in carnivorous plants. And if you look at the titles of the books that Charles Darwin wrote, he wrote a number of things, but he wrote on orchids, coral reefs, how they form, uh, and, and a couple of books actually on carnivorous plants. He really loved sundews. So that was like, I was like, wow, that, how weird is that? So um, 
are, is there anyone in the audience that keeps carnivorous plants? Some, some, yeah, a few. I don't think a lot of people in the world keep carnivorous plants, so the fact that there are even a couple people here, a couple, three, um, who keep them is sort of a statistical anomaly. Um, how many of you guys keep orchids? Uh, more, more people keep orchids, and, and like, I think much more than the, the general population. Um, why, why did that like trinary constellation of, of hobbies sort of gel for me? Um, I, I might argue that, that RODI water is sort of uh, a gateway drug to all of those hobbies. And once, you, once you've acquired an RODI unit for one of them, it's just very easy to slide into any of the others, right? Because carnivorous plants are really quite robust and beautiful and interesting, uh, but they need, they need very low hardness water for almost, for almost all uh, types of them. Uh, but you've got that, right? So all you have to do is go out and buy a carnivorous plant. And you've, you've got the light, you know about light, right? So um, you're, you're off to the races. Um, so you can have carnivorous plants. Is there anyone who keeps uh, poison dart frogs here? Yeah, again, some, some people do that as well. Um, so here's, here's an orchid, here's a drosera. This is one of the, one of the carnivorous plants that, that Darwin was really uh, entranced by because it, it actually, it will move when it, the, the tentacles will like entwine around the, the prey animals. Um, they're really, they're really gorgeous. Um, so this is a Nepenthes on the end, those two, and this is another, uh, I think it's Drosera uh, bifida. It, it's, it's the dichotomously branching uh, sundew that gets, gets pretty bad. Um, <clears throat> I, how many of you guys keep uh, cats or dogs? Yeah, a lot, a lot of us keep that. So. This was a, something that I got off the internet. It's supposed to be a category three hurricane. I guess I, today we need a couple more cats, right, for the cat five. Um, how many people uh, are really into, take a great deal of pleasure in doing mechanical projects? Yeah, a lot, a lot of us do that, right? So that's, that's, a, that's another kind of close association with the, with the reef hobby. So one of these, one of these I, this is Boomer, I think, with one of his fast cars. I stole this off of Facebook. And this is, this is an Alice Chalmers uh, WD road crop tractor. And my dad one day literally brought one of these tractors home in a box. And he was so proud of himself. He was like, and I, was, I, I remember him pulling up with this thing, and I saw what was in the boxes. It was a tractor in the boxes, right, that we were going to have to put together. But he was, just, he was just so happy because we were going to be able to do this together. So um, I think that that's great, and I think that there is, like, all this crossover um, between hobbies. Um, how many of you, when you move into a new apartment or house, uh, feel kind of weird until you put install like a, a plant or something in the space. Yeah, some of you. That's that's really strong with me. So that's like this biophilia hypothesis, and I think a lot of us are are very very in tune. We seek out uh, other living organisms, and it's just it's just part of our intrinsic nature. 
Um, digressing a little bit more, uh, how many of you are like take costumes really, really seriously? Rich, yeah, I know you do. Yeah, some, some, quite a few, quite a few. So you know, you may see uh, uh, pirates uh, in the elevator. Um, this, so this is, yeah, um, and 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 this is Rich and his family. Um, I think that they take it pretty seriously. Rich, you've got it bad. I mean, I think that you you're like you are the hobby comorbidity king. I think of, of all of us. You're maybe the sickest individual, and, and, and I love you for it. You know, I think it's great. Um, and to the point that, that Rich then mixes costumes and pets and dresses them up for Halloween. Um, and, and so this is a little bit different than the others, and, and I promised Kathy that I was going to mention two things, one of which is from her talk, one of which was Reed Mariculture, and the other is Gary Parr um, and Christine Williams, who used to have Reef Threads podcast, um, they, they now have another podcast, like Fiber Talk. So is there anybody out there who does knitting or other sort of needlework as a pastime? Yeah, yeah, how about that? I didn't know that that was, that was like a point of intersection with our hobby, but it, but it may be. Um, and the reason that I put this up here is that uh, this, may, this talk is probably going to be recorded, and there's a chance that, that either Gary or Christine is going to see it, and I, I want to tell you that I miss you both, and I wish you'd come back. So um, it, finally, I'd like to thank all of you for, for bearing with me through this uh, sort of like personal meandering dialogue of the, the history of the aquarium hobby as, as told by me um, and, and the, the people who are responsible for the, for the Masno Award this year. Um, I'm open to any questions that you guys have in the remaining time.